church at this time. I was talking to Richard Maddish out in the foyer this morning, and he told me, he saw that I was speaking, and he said, be sure it's more than 10 minutes. <laughs> I must have a reputation around here. So I decided to preach from the whole book of Exodus this morning. <laughs> so once we finish reading through our text, I think you'll all, all be having your afternoon naps. <laughs> all right, we are going to look at the entire book of Exodus, but we are not going to read the entire book. The book of Exodus. Go ahead and turn over to chapter 9, Exodus chapter 9. That will be the first passage that we're going to be in. But I've got some, I'm going to have to summarize a lot of the book for you. And before we even do that, let us stop and ask the Lord's blessing. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a book like Exodus that teaches us about who you are, about our great God. We pray that you'd help us this morning to learn even more of who you are, the great things that you have done, and the honor that you deserve from us. We ask it in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. So, a few weeks ago, I celebrated a birthday. And for my birthday, Mrs. Snow told most of my students that it was my birthday. I wasn't telling them. So I got a number of cards and gift cards and other gifts from my students, from the parents of my students here at Calvary Christian School. The best gift I got was not a card, it wasn't a gift card. It was from a lady, mom of one of our students. She gave me enough food for 10 to 12 meals. All home-cooked meals, lasagna, manicotti, broccoli and chicken, quiche, everything. Now, for most of you, that might not seem like the most wonderful gift, but I'm a single guy. I live by myself, and I don't like to cook. So, that is a very exciting gift for me. I mean, so, some of the others were too. Gift cards, Togo's gift cards. I think I got, uh, I won't tell you how much I got, because then you'll want to go out for lunch. <laughs> uh, but that was a very thoughtful gift. That she understood who I was, where I am in life, and she gave me that gift. And there are other, there's a couple of ladies in the church that regularly do that. They don't give me 10 to 12 meals at a time. They'll just give me two to three meals every two weeks. Um, but, you know, when somebody does something that really seems special to you, you want to honor them in some way, don't you? You want to somehow show your appreciation. It might be as simple as, I'm going to tell them thank you. I'm going to write them a thank you note. Or, maybe it's something like I'm just doing right now. I'm talking about it to other people. 
She has no idea that I'm saying this. I'm not going to tell her that I said this. But I am honoring her, am I not? So, when someone does something that we really appreciate, something does, something does, someone does something that is great in our sight, we usually try to honor them in some way. And it's the same way with our Lord. Here in the book of Exodus, we're going to see that the God of the Bible, Yahweh, does great things for the people of Israel. When they are in slavery in Egypt, he hears them. He hears their cries. He knows that they're his people. They're the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God had made a covenant promise with those men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give them and their descendants a land. He would bless them. He would give them a multitude of descendants. And yet they're enslaved in Egypt. But God remembers them. God hears their cry. He raises up Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. But then we've got this man, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, who does not want to let them go. So the Lord reveals that he, not Pharaoh, not any of the gods, the false gods of Egypt, but that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is the one who controls nations, the one who is sovereign in this world. He's sovereign over Egypt, sovereign over nature. Remember some of the plagues that come up in the book of Exodus? The flies and the frogs and darkness. Our Lord is sovereign over Egypt, over nature, even over these so-called gods of Egypt. Because one of the things, if you take the time to study it, you see that there, the Egyptians worshipped many false gods, and a lot of the plagues are directly linked to gods that they would worship. Like, for example, the sun god, plague of darkness, is an attack on the false god, the sun god. Pharaoh himself is considered a god. And Pharaoh's son, who would be the next Pharaoh, his firstborn son, would be considered the next Pharaoh. Pharaoh's son, then, would technically also be a god. So in the final plague, the tenth plague, when God kills the firstborn. It's, again, it's attack on these false gods. You're making Pharaoh your god? He's not truly a god because he can't stand up to Yahweh. So God shows how great he is with these plagues until finally, Pharaoh really has no choice but to say, you may go. But Pharaoh quickly changes his mind, doesn't he? And he says, what happened? Where'd all my slaves go? So he chases them down to the Red Sea. And the Lord again shows that he is sovereign over nature. He splits that water so that they, the Israelites have a dry path. 
but that the Lord is also sovereign over Egypt. And when the Egyptians try to follow, those walls of water come crashing back down. So, the Lord brought the Israelites safely out of Egypt. He sustained them. He provided food for them. He provided water for them. He protected them in battle. Finally, he brings them to Mount Sinai. Now, the second half of the book of Exodus is all at Mount Sinai. And if you want to continue on from Exodus, the book of Leviticus, the entire book of Leviticus is at Mount Sinai. I believe it's the first ten chapters or so of Numbers before they finally leave Mount Sinai. So that's where we come to in our summary of the book. What the Lord did for Israel is truly unparalleled in the history of the world. He rescues this people who is enslaved, they're in bondage, and he rescues them entirely by supernatural means. There's no slave uprising. It's the Lord who does it all. Yahweh had done great things for Israel. So then we come back to our question. What is our natural response when someone does something great for us? We want to honor that person, don't we? And it's no different with our Lord. The Lord called Israel to honor him. In several ways, and we're going to look at those this morning. And I realize, we here today are not a part of Israel. So, in a way, we're looking at this as, this is what the Lord desired of Israel. But there is application here for us as well. We serve the same God that they served. And that is the God who worked those mighty wonders that delivered them out of the land of Egypt. That same God is the God who's working in our lives. And if each of us were to look back on our lives, we don't have an exodus out of Egypt in our lives. But we do have things that we could look back on, that these are great things that the Lord has done for me. The Lord is a loving sovereign, a loving king. So what should be our response? Like the response of the people of Israel, the response that the Lord desires, and really the only right response, is this. Let us honor the one who has done great things for us. And from the book of Exodus, we're going to see two ways which we also ought to honor the Lord. First one is this. We ought to honor our Lord by making his name known. You should be in Exodus chapter 9. Look with me at verse 13. Verses 13 through 16. This is in the midst of the plagues on Egypt. Pick it up in verse 13. And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning, and stand before Pharaoh, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, 
that they may serve me. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart, and upon thy servants, and upon thy people. Notice here the purpose. That thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. For now I will stretch out my hand, that I may smite thee, and thy people with pestilence, and thou shalt be cut off from the earth, and in very deed, for this cause, for this reason, have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. So why did the Lord do what he did in Egypt? So that Pharaoh would know that there is no God, there is no person like Yahweh but also to show in Pharaoh God's power and that his name, that Yahweh's name, would be spread abroad, that everyone would be talking about what he had done for his people, Israel. Now, as we go through the book of Exodus, you saw the name in verse 12, and the Lord capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When you see that, that is the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. And throughout Exodus, this seems to be a theme, is that the Lord says, makes this expression. It's not in this passage, but we'll look at several where it does show up. He uses the expression, I am the Lord, or I am the Lord. Yahweh. And the, the context in which we find that expression emphasize that he is sovereign, that he controls all things, but also that he's faithful, faithful to keep his promises, particularly the promises that we already mentioned that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob back in the book of Genesis. And it's this God that the Israelites needed to make known. Now, here in Exodus 9, it's the Lord himself making himself known. The Israelites are pretty passive. The Lord is bringing all these plagues on Egypt, and the Israelites don't really have a say in how much the Lord's name is magnified. But later on, we're going to see that it does depend on the Israelites, that the Israelites are the ones that God uses to honor his name. So how do we make the Lord's name known, and how did they make his name known? Turn with me over to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 12. Exodus 12 Verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and execute, excuse me, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. There's that expression we're talking about that comes up many times in the book of Exodus. 
And then verse 13. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. So we've got that expression, I am Yahweh or I am the Lord. The Lord is identifying himself by name. He did that as early as, well, he identified himself with the people of Israel back in Exodus chapter 2. That's really the first time that the Lord is mentioned doing anything, Exodus chapter 2. He identifies himself as the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore the God of their descendants, the people of Israel. So, simply by birth, an Israelite becomes part of God's people. They, God would identify with them because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even in the plagues, we see this distinction starting to be made. Some of the plagues hit both Egyptians and Israelites, but then as we get toward the latter few plagues, they tend to only focus on the Egyptians. The Israelites are spared from those plagues. And of course, most obviously, in this plague, the tenth plague, where the Lord commanded the Israelites to take a lamb, kill a lamb, put his blood on the doorposts and on the top of the doorframe. And when the angel of death passed through Egypt, killing the firstborn in every home, if he saw that blood, he would pass over that house. That's the Jewish feast of Passover. That's what they celebrate in the Jewish feast of Passover. But there's part, there's something involved in that. Up to this point, the Lord identified himself with Israel, but Israel really didn't have to do anything. But here in Exodus 12, if the people wanted to be identified with the Lord, they had to take that lamb, they had to put that blood on the door frames of their houses. That is not saying that because they put the blood on the door frame, therefore they earned God's deliverance. But what it is showing us is that there is obedience. And to go over to the New Testament, the Lord also requires obedience of us. Faith itself is spoken of in terms of obedience. It's, Christ died on the cross for our sins, but we have to trust in him. It's not a work that we do, not that we're earning salvation, but it's a depending on him, and it is spoken of in terms of obedience. So the Israelites identified themselves as followers of the Lord. And I really don't think that there was anything here that said you had to be an Israelite to do this. An Egyptian person 
who's seen all of these plagues, who understood Israel's God is the true God. He's the only God. They also could put blood on the doorposts of their house and have their firstborn son spared. So don't think of this as some kind of a favoritism. Because what the Lord wanted from Israel, he really just wanted Israel to be an example. And we'll get to this later. But he wanted them to be an example of the relationship that he wanted with all people. So, again, moving to the New Testament. The Israelites honored the name of the Lord by identifying themselves with them. We, too, can identify ourselves with the Lord by identifying ourselves with him, by trusting in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 10, verse 13, it says, Whosoever shall call on... What are we supposed to call on? The name of the Lord. And what I find interesting in that context... That's actually, Paul in the book of Romans is quoting from the book of Joel. And in the book of Joel, the Hebrew word is Yahweh. It's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When Paul uses it, he's very clearly, very clearly talking about Jesus. So if someone tells you that Jesus is not the same God as the God of the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul would beg to differ. He believed that Jesus is Yahweh. So, it is on the name of the Lord. It's on Yahweh's name. It's on the name of Jesus Christ that we must call to be delivered, not from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to our own sin from judgment of our sin. So we can make Yahweh's name known by identifying ourselves with him. That's what we see here in Exodus 12. But we can also make the Lord's name known by representing him to others. Turn over to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19 in verse 3. Exodus 19 and verse 3. This is right at the moment when the Israelites arrive at Mount Sinai. In Exodus 20, which we'll look at in a few minutes, is where we have the Ten Commandments. But here in, in Exodus 19, we really have the offer of a covenant. That the Lord offers this special relationship. Now, did Israel already have a special relationship with the Lord? Yes. But he offers them this special relationship of blessing. Unlike the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because those promises with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were unconditional. God promised a land, a multitude of descendants, a blessing. That's unconditional. Didn't matter what Israel did, that's their promise. 
the covenant that he makes in beginning in Exodus 19 is conditional. It's, I will bless you if you follow me. I will judge you if you don't. So look with me at verse 3. Exodus 19, verse 3. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So not only do we make the Lord's name known by identifying ourselves with him, but also by representing him to others. So we've got this covenant, this special relationship, and if we were to look down at verse 8, we see that the people of Israel actually agree to this covenant before they even know what they're agreeing to. It's, they've already learned by this point that the Lord is worth following, and they agree to this covenant. But let's look just quickly at verse 5. If you're using the King James Version, you've got that word peculiar in there. And the word peculiar does not mean what you think peculiar means today. It, when King James translators used the word peculiar, it meant one's personal possession. So we could say one's own treasure or God's personal treasure. It's a treasured possession, specifically and particularly God's. That's who he wanted Israel to be. But then in verse 6, we see he calls them a kingdom of priests. Now, there's a couple of ways we could take that expression. A kingdom of priests could be a kingdom that has priests in it. Or it could be a kingdom where every individual in the nation is a priest. But I think the most likely concept here is that the kingdom as a whole, the entire nation of Israel, functioned as priests, functioned in a priestly role for the rest of the world. So Israel had, was supposed to be set apart for the Lord so that the nations around could see Israel has this tight-knit relationship with God, and we want that. We want that kind of a relationship. Israel has direct access to God. They have the presence of God in the tabernacle. We want that. We want that kind of a relationship with God. He cares for his people. We want that kind of a God. That is what Israel's role was. So this isn't some kind of favoritism, as I already said. It's not that God said, 
I like Israel more, so they're going to be my people. No, it's actually the opposite. Israel isn't worth much of anything, and I don't mean that in a, to say that they're, they're still human, so they've got value. But they are insignificant. They're not special people. So I'm going to choose them, and I'm going to use them to show what I could do for all people. So Israel's function was to represent the Lord to the world. And this is the ideal. As the nations and the individuals around them saw Israel living righteously, living in accord with what God desired, and God then blessing them. Those nations or individuals in those nations would see that and they would desire that same kind of relationship. But sadly, Israel failed time and again at fulfilling this ideal. And again, we're not Israel, but we are also representatives of the Lord. Now, we are not a nation. The church is not a nation. Not in the same sense that Israel was a nation. Israel was ethnically one people. We are many different ethnicities. That is really the beauty of the church. It is people from all nations of the world whose only common unifying factor is our relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that would bring all the people in this room together. We have different interests, we have different ethnicities, we have different ages. We are individuals within nations who represent Christ to other individuals around us. And Jesus calls us in the Great Commission, as we go places, we're supposed to teach others to also follow him. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Go ye therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So, the question for us. Not only have we identified with Jesus Christ, have we identified with the Lord, but are we representing him? Are we telling other people about him? Are you telling your coworkers? Are you telling your family? about the great things that the Lord has done for you. Like the people of Israel, that is the way that we can honor our Lord for what he has done. Let us consider another way in which we can honor our Lord. We ought to honor him by dedicating our lives to him. And notice here in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, 
He says, you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. And then he says, an unholy nation. The word holy means something or someone who is set apart, who is dedicated, who is consecrated for a particular reason, for a particular purpose, for a particular person. In this case, someone or a nation who is set apart for God. And if we were to read on into Leviticus in particular, this is a really big theme there, that Israel is to be holy because the Lord is holy. But here in Exodus, we see the holiness of Israel, and we're going to apply it to ourselves as well. The holiness of God's people is evident both by their obeying him and by building the tabernacle where the Lord would live with his people. So turn over the page to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. This is, we dedicate our lives to him by obeying him. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God. Just pause for a second. There's that expression again. I am the Lord. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. So we've got the Ten Commandments here. This is the first two in the Ten Commandments. But I want you to notice the setting of the Ten Commandments. This isn't just an obey because I told you to, though that is included. But it is obey because I am the one who delivered you out of Egypt. That's what he says in verse 2. I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. So it's not just that... God wants to be the only one who you worship. It is God has delivered you. He's the one who has delivered you. Why would you consider someone else? Why would you consider something else as your source of fulfillment, as the, the thing that you worship when it's the Lord who has done great things for you? That is the motivation for why we should obey. And really, it's the same for us as New Testament believers. The greatest motivation that you will ever have to obey the Lord is not Pastor Snow telling you to do something. It's not even, well, if I don't do this, people aren't going to think I'm a good Christian. That's not a good motivation. The best motivation 
always the best motivation is going to be to look back at the cross. What Jesus did for us. And perhaps other things that the Lord has done in your life personally. But that the Lord has saved me. The Lord has grown me. Therefore, because of that, I want to obey him. So, the Lord continues. Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. And then it gets expanded out in chapters 21 through 23 in a section called the Book of the Covenant. Then the law continues through the whole book of Leviticus. Probably not your favorite book of the Bible to read. And then Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. But here in Exodus 20, we really have the law in summary form. That's why people memorize the Ten Commandments. A short, succinct way of remembering what God gave his people Israel. So the question for us this morning is, are we obeying the Lord? Is there a way that we can honor the Lord further by some step of obedience, by some action or thought that we're not obeying him, that we could obey him, and therefore give him honor. Give him honor because of the great things he has done for us. Last week, we had the privilege of seeing a man baptized. You know what he was doing? He is honoring the Lord. He's saying that the Lord is worthy of me following him. And I'm, and I'm willing to identify myself with him. Baptism isn't about us. It's about honoring the Lord, saying that I now associate myself with Jesus, and I'm willing to say that publicly. So maybe that's the step of obedience that you need to take, or maybe it's something else, but that is what one, another way in which we can honor our Lord and then we come to the final section in Exodus. And again, this is one of those sections that is very tedious to read. Approximately 40% of Exodus is about how to build the tabernacle and then the building of the tabernacle. And it can be very tedious to read. We're not going to read it this morning. But I want you to just think about the big picture. Why is that so important? It's not the details. It's not that we're supposed to go in there and say, well, because there are however many uh, curtains that, and they're made of this material that they mean this. I don't think that's the point. The point of all of that material is to say, and to emphasize that God dwelling with his people is an important thing. And it's got to be done right. So, how do we dedicate our lives to him? We dedicate our lives to him by spending time in his presence. 
by worshiping him, by just lingering long in the presence of our Lord. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 40, very last chapter in the book. Exodus chapter 40, and this will be our last passage that we will read this morning. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. This is after the completion of everything that God had said. In fact, back in verse 32, throughout the passage, but verse 32 is an example, it says, as the Lord commanded Moses, he did all these things. So then verse 34, then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So what's going on here? They've built this tabernacle, this tent, and the Lord has come to live in it. His glory and his presence have descended on this earthly house, if you will. The Lord had come to live with his people, Israel. Now, there was a process. The, ran, the average Israelite could not just simply walk into God's presence. There was the priestly system. The high priest could go into that holy of holies once a year. But still, the level of detail and the amount of time amount of space in the book of Exodus emphasized that this is important. This is critical, that God be with his people. Or we could say it the other way, that God's people be with God. Now, in the New Testament, we see when Jesus was on the cross, and as he died, that curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies. That curtain is torn in two. What does that mean? It means that you no longer have to have a high priest that goes in once a year, but we have direct access. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16 says that we can now come boldly unto the throne of grace. Now for us, it's not a physical location like the temple, but we can come directly into God's presence. We don't need some intermediary like a priest, because the New Testament teaches that we are priests. We can come directly into God's presence because of Jesus Christ. So the question for us is, not only are we obeying the Lord and honoring him by obeying him, but are we spending time in his presence? That is a way to honor our Lord. So, we have seen two ways 
from the book of Exodus in which we can honor our Lord for the great things he has done for us. First, we ought to honor our Lord by making his name known, by identifying ourselves with him and by representing him to others. But second, we ought to honor him by dedicating our lives to him, by obeying what he commands us and by spending time with him. So as we begin today, we noted that it's natural. Someone does something for you, you want to honor them. This is what the Lord expected of his people Israel, and it's what he expects of us as well. The Lord desires to have that personal relationship with each of us, in which we commune with him, we fellowship with him, and he then enables us to obey him and to tell others about him. So if you've never begun that relationship with Jesus Christ, we invite you to do that today, to trust in him, to trust in his death on the cross for you. But for most of us who are already in that relationship, are we spending time with our Lord? Do we desire to obey him? to do whatever he might want us to do? And are we telling others about our wonderful Lord? I encourage you this morning, let us honor the one who has done great things.